0: May 40 here. So who's going to lead, right? Now that the, the queen is gone, like who's going to lead? Who's going to lead the world's Anglo-Saxon tribes? So I never really thought that much about the queen, but uh, I suddenly found myself becoming a little bit emotional. Uh, Duvid, the queen of England, has, has died at age uh, 96. And uh, England is entering a, a time of mourning and uh, there's a new king king charles the the third do you have any reflections on the death of a
1: queen
2: uh not
1: much i mean uh related to uh realizations and judaism one of those is certainly lineage and uh like in israel rabbis their lineage is extremely important and, and in fact i remember specifically i was at a sabbath meal and there was someone from london and they were asking the guy i was staying about about his rabbi and he asked them uh you're know, like well who did he marry and who were his parents and who were his grandparents and you know long areas of lineage that uh uh he was, was really pretty valuable like as a convert you know, may maybe uh you know you feel that uh, or even it's like a baltruva, but like most rabbis uh you know some rabbis have davidic lineage you know traced back to king david uh, but long lineages going back to rabbis uh in the orthodox jewish community um most people know their lineage uh going back long periods of time and you know second third most uh, uh, distant people, cousins and uh you know so that aspect uh may be more european based ashkenazic or, or tribal understanding of judaism um you know and also like you know, god forbid when i came back to metro detroit in the holocaust so um there's certain prominent people in the community who are holocaust survivors and specifically you know, like the kinder transport and uh you know, i think uh you know, 10,000 jews were saved from Amsterdam, and uh, they like the you know the British monarchy. I think Orthodox Jews, Yeshiva University, uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik in general, are referred to as Anglophiles. That they you know they really pushed Israel to have the Anglo way of life, and uh, think that the Anglo type civilization is the best civilization. As you know, it was mentioned over the week that generally Jews in America if you know we've assimilated, we've assimilated to the Anglo norm and there's a little bit of a respect for uh you know for the crown or history of it, and, then obviously there's the anti Semitism and uh, you know, like the long history and uh your know, various aspects. Uh but uh you know generally I haven't really cared uh you know, like as an American or even as a Jew I never paid that much attention. Um I I did see uh you know, I, I was in Brooklyn, Rabbi, Rabbi Gluck, Edgar Gluck, uh, may live and be well. He's in his eighties, uh, Maimonides hospital, God forbid I see it going bankrupt, but he was on the board of directors and he, uh, you know, was a police chaplain, and then he was appointed the chief Rabbi Galiziana. And, uh, and, and he was in the paper, he got a photo op with, uh, with, uh, Prince Charles now King. And, uh, and, and it was a big deal like, oh, he has a picture with the prince and the prince went to this Holocaust Memorial event. And, uh, you know so i I think King Charles was pretty active. There's probably tens and tens of thousands of orthodox Jews who have met Prince Charles and uh you know like as I said in the modern orthodox community, even some aspects of the karti community there's a strong uh anglo uh philic uh element
0: i i find it uh, moving that this is an event that much of the country shares i mean th- there's no equivalent in america we we would not have a week of mourning for for the death of any american but uh, crowds have, have gathered they're, they're spontaneously sporting events are, are canceled uh, there 's like a national unity and, and national purpose and, and a sense of enchantment magic and mystery and and a communal shared experience that, that I see with the english that, uh, that I just find enviable it 's one of the awesome parts of, of nationalism how you can have these these rituals and these allegiances that that bring people together, so in this sense the the English mourning their queen and i'm i 'm looking video of, of you know people choking up and being sad it 's similar to to the way that you know Orthodox Jews venerate their leaders and coming together to have rituals in common to to sing songs together that this is a shared experience this is like an Anglo taste of the communal experience that uh, Orthodox Jews get to share on a regular basis. Any thoughts on that connection?
1: Yeah, definitely. A few times, I'm not sure if it's, uh, you know, uh, issues, even have been having a few of them. But uh, yeah, I mean, as an American, um, you know, we have celebrity culture, uh, you know, maybe like Michael Jackson, I, I guess, you know, I remember when, princess diana passed away and that you know that was big news and it just seemed overblown like you know why does everyone care and uh you it's a part of nationalism a part of identity and then you know seeing that jews especially orthodox and then haredi uh and, and probably Hasidic, more than any this extremely strong form of identity and the identity is kind of based on the rabbi like you know like the handshaking ceremonies, um, you know, I've never really seen anything like that in my life. Even in uh, the yeshiva in Detroit, even at the young Israel, it always seems a little bit weird. You know, like everyone lining up to uh, shake the hand of the rabbi or say a good Sabbath to the rabbi, you know, Rosh yeshiva, And then, uh, you know, like by Hasidic rabbis, like I have lined up and shook in the hands of rabbis, like thousands of times, It's just what we do you know, like Sabbath prayer service, Friday night, shall us at the Tish, you know, sometimes like multiple times on a Sabbath. And, and like even the young Israel, even the modern Orthodox, you know, like still everyone basically lines up to shake hands, uh, you know, with the rabbi. And there's no comparison in American secular society. And, and even like however bit American I am, I always feel out of place when people are doing it. It's like, oh man, am I really going to line up and uh, shake hands with the rabbi? I feel like you know, as an American, there's something uh wrong with doing it, and it's a group strategy. So it's like you know, best of both worlds fallacy. That uh, a certain level of individualism, you can't really have both ways. So you know, like as Orthodox Jew, all the eyes on you, all the you know various uh, things you can't get away with uh, because you're Orthodox um, goes together with the benefit of you know strong group identity. And you know, however much for the Anglo obviously England has changed, and the demographics are changing, and the royal house is you're probably at one of its weakest points in uh, long long periods of time, yeah obviously her son and Jeffrey Epstein and the scandal and all that and and uh uh you know, yeah, I was joking like I wonder how far removed from the throne Richard Spencer was. I remember joking about that a few years ago, like what would it like the a movie they made. Uh, I I forget uh, the name, uh, about about the American that becomes king of England. Like, I don't know if Richard Spencer is like, you know, 400th in line to the throne, or maybe he's like 3,000th in line to the throne. What would it take that they would, uh, you know, make Richard Spencer the next king of England?
0: And uh, I wonder, what what would it take for for the Anglos to recover their, their tribal identity? So. Right now there are millions of Americans of Anglo heritage who don't identify as Anglo. They'd rather identify with their one sixteenth Irish side. There's a flight from Anglo in America, in in Australia, in many places in the world because Anglo-Saxon is considered boring. So I wonder if we might ever get an Anglo-Saxon, an English king, a philosopher king who is able to unite the world's Anglos in in a a tribal identity that they have, you know, certain certain values, certain commitments, certain rituals and philosophies and ways of living that uh, unite them. So if the tribal identity, you know, anything akin to what uh, traditional Jews have, they'd be an absolutely unstoppable force. So no one seems to be talking much about the wasp question. But maybe, maybe one day the anglers will rediscover their tribal identity.
1: Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, Richard Spencer. I'm obviously from the house of Spencer, not the uh, not the the house of the Queen. That you know, Diana Spencer uh, you know, was the wife of uh, the new king. So uh, Richard Spencer from the house of Spencer, with some sort of Zionist concept like that, and you know, like you always mentioned, uh, you know, the Anglican. Church is basically just as woke as uh you reform Judaism, and uh it took something God forbid like the Holocaust and the creation of the State of Israel to reawaken Jewish identity and in America, the reality is Zionism still not that popular it's most popular among Orthodox Jews, and there's more Israelis that come to America than Americans go to Israel, your know, standard of living, various things uh that uh I would say it'd be near impossible. It'd be, you know, take some sort of catastrophic event or, or some, you know, basically, you know, freak event like Richard Spencer would arise to uh, be the leader of the Anglos and, uh, you know, like the ethno state and the likelihood that uh, Richard Spencer would be able to, uh, or, you know, become the next King of England uh, and arouse Anglos to return to their ancestral land. It would probably be more likely some sort of pan-European movement in, uh, in a balkanized, uh, America. And it would probably, God forbid, be like Zionism where it would probably take something like the Holocaust. It would probably take some sort of national tragedy and, uh, war, uh, mass casualty event to, uh, cause that. And, you know, if you think the current state of the, uh, Episcopal or Anglican Presbyterian, like the Anglo history churches, most of them have already filled their ranks with African-Americans, So I think like 20 to 50 percent of a lot of those churches are African-Americans. And, you know, they're not Anglo stock anymore. So the, you know, the base is just like Reform Judaism. It'd be very difficult to have a Jewish revival movement uh, using Reform Judaism because Reform Judaism is only like half ethnically Jewish today. And uh, and so you can't really have a strong ethnic uh, Jewish revival movement among a group that's only half ethnically jewish and so the remnant of anglo culture in america has already been too dissipated to you know even picture something like that like seventh-day adventist you like that it'd be you know not a mainstream movement like you're a seventh-day adventist and they're probably more ethnically anglo than the mainstream anglican church so i mean if you looked at your colony where you grew up in Australia uh, of, of just pure blood ratios, you're probably, you know, they're probably still have a higher blood quanta of Anglo identity than, uh, you know, than the Anglican church and the Episcopalian or Presbyterian, all the various historical Anglican church, right?
0: With the, with the Seventh-day Adventists, they, they have a very high percentage of non-white people. So it's, it's not primarily an anglo movement
1: uh, so not even them I mean it just doesn't exist to have a diaspora Anglo group that maintained a high blood quanta
0: well uh, in the Anglican Church you, you'd find some of that but uh, I want to play just uh, 15 seconds here from Queen Elizabeth when she was taking over I before you all, says I declare before you all life, that my whole life
2: be long or short
0: whether it be shall long be or short, shall be service, devoted to your service and to the service of and to the service, family, to the service of our belong. great imperial family to which we all belong. so one thing that the the monarchy and, and Britain in general has in common with Orthodox Judaism is a sense of a life of service and a life of obligation, so kind of the, the American thing is follow your bliss, but the the British thing is much more uh, follow your obligations. So the, much of the American ideal is that you go inside to you know, find out who you are, but in the, the English conception of life, you go outside yourself to find out who you are. So in those senses, the, the British way of life is uh, somewhat similar to the Orthodox Jewish way of life because the Orthodox Jewish conception is not uh, follow your bliss. It's very much follow your obligations,
1: Who's Anybody? the quote? Lean, lean, I mean, I, I, it's some British female royalty. Lean back and think of England, right? <laughs> that, yeah. that wasn't. Is it's that, is it's that
0: a quote. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure any any ro- English royalty said that, but it is uh, an English joke. Yeah.
1: I um, mean, you think like, oh yeah, there's that strong identity of a duty to the people, but you know, what does it mean to be English anymore? It's like America. It's an ideal. It's no longer a people, and even the you know the royal family. Uh, you know, is now intermarried, is in shambles, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, the the Prince Andrew scandal and, uh, you know, Meghan Merkel. And so there would no longer be this concept of the royal family as representative of an ethnic group. They're representative of an idea or historical force. And that could include and and does include you know large part of people that aren't from that ethnic identity like you were talking about uh you know, we were talking about converts in judaism that uh you, you know like israel the who is a jew question and what role the converts make in judaism if you look at england and converts to uh in, you know angloism at this point uh you know 20 percent of the anglo nation are converts and uh, probably 30 40 percent of the leadership are converts. So what does it mean for you know, Anglo-ism when so much of the leadership in nation at this point are converts?
0: The Queen, just a couple of days before she died, she, she stood up, she smiled, and she greeted the new British Prime Minister, right? just uh, two days before the Queen's own death. And this is the last photo that we have of the Queen. She is being of service, which is characteristic of her life as a whole. So I want to get to another story before you head off for Shabbat. And this is from the uh, Washington Post. New York set to force ultra-Orthodox schools to teach secular subjects. So new regulations would require private schools to meet state education standards. New York state officials on Friday proposed new rules that would require private schools to prove they are meeting state education standards. So this is a long-awaited response to allegations that uh, conservative Jewish yeshivas failing to deliver lessons in core subjects such as English, math, and science. Schools that refuse to comply could lose their designation for meeting the state's compulsory education requirements. And school districts that fail to monitor the private schools could lose state funding. These rules would apply to all private schools, religious or not, but they come in response to years of accusations that many Orthodox schools in Hasidic Jewish communities spend virtually all their time studying Torah and Talmud, religious texts, leaving children without the education that state law requires they be offered in English, math, science, and social studies, along with a handful of other topics. Any thoughts, Duvid?
1: Yeah, Mahaf Galitzin was messaging me all about this, and I've been following this issue for, you know, really decades now. And, uh, you know, the legalities of, is this really a legitimate news story? They finally passed some sort of regulation. Uh, You know, technocratically, what does it really mean? It it means that there'll be contingencies upon funding. And, uh, you know, the, the Jewish private schools get a significant amount of government funding and make it contingent. What will be the enforcement mechanism? Will there be any change? And the greater cultural issue, like I said, that you know historically most Jews have assimilated, and we've assimilated towards Anglo norms, and the one holdout are Haredi. And you, know, if you question, are you really more American, you know, as a Jew? you you're know, like are you really more american because you've assimilated towards angloism is say, well no, we assimilated towards angloism but that doesn't make us more american for jews who don't speak english who uh don't you know, learn math or science uh live in multicultural nor- uh, america they're not less american than we are they're just less assimilated to anglo norms and they still have all the benefits of being american They just don't have the benefits of having assimilated to um, Anglo norms. And, you know, I assume this battle will be fought. It's probably mostly pushed on by secular Jews, like you're saying, like uh, even the level of like converts, uh, uh, assimilated Jews that want to have the high ground and are pushing for punitive action towards Haredim and also by budgetary concerns like inflation, times are tough, and we have to uh, cut the budget, you know, like crime, you know, it's catch and release, people uh, commit crimes and get right right out. And can we really afford to, you know, as the U.S. government, to pump so much money into these Haredi schools and uh, not even hold them to any standards? Uh, But I I would assume that they're not going to win this battle in terms of assimilating to uh, Anglo norms, haredim, they might lose their funding, you know, so even if they took the funding away from them, because they didn't meet those standards, I would guess that probably 75, 80% of them would uh, just not get the funding, as opposed to meet the standards. And if it came to a level where after they take the funding away, are they really going to try to force them and considering the, the level of education, and uh, you're saying that there's not many white people left in New York City. And, uh, you know, you're looking at the level of quality of education relatively in New York City. Are you really going to push, you know, say like, no, you create a must do different. So, you know, I think it's being overblown by New York newspapers and the New York newspapers, like the New York Times, even the Post, um, the majority, Washington Journal, are all um dominated by secular Jews that have uh you know kind of an anti-orthodox Jewish slant that they've had for years and think Eric Adams campaigned on protecting the yeshivas so I mean like the black vote in terms of New York elections uh Jews are very powerful within the city uh you, you know so even if they pass legislation in Albany that might affect funding in terms of enforcement within New York Eric Adams campaigned that he was going to keep his hands off the Yeshivos.
0: Okay, so how how are these these Hasidic groups so effective at maintaining their identity and maintaining their own educational institutions and maintaining a whole host of institutions without being assimilated into uh, the 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 norms of the people who vastly outnumber them?
1: Well, part of it is that there's no no whites, really. So there's no one really, you know, are you going to assimilate into uh, you know blacks, Puerto Ricans? Like if you're in Crown Heights, what does it mean to assimilate? Like assimilate just means to like shave your beard and stop doing mitzvahs. Uh, you know, saying that generally Jews assimilate to Anglo norms and there are no Anglos left in New York City. So, uh, you know, like assimilation in that sense, and, and even assimilating like that's not really assimilating if you live in new york city like assimilating anglo norms may or may not help you and even terms like education if you compare what your average new yorker is doing uh, like you're there in la so if you're thinking like does that mean assimilated you know like if, if you were an uh, uh, orthodox jew in la and you're thinking like uh you know we like there's only 20 percent whites in los angeles and uh you know most of the people are hispanic or or various things what does it mean to assimilate and and to some extent the, the assimil- like uh uh the window of assimilation is probably over that uh, you know like assimilation probably uniquely refers to to white passing specifically and and saying that uh, you know say there's no whites left so what does it mean to white pass now when uh, when Jews are already the whitest people in those neighborhoods
0: Oh, whites are still about uh, 70% of the populations, uh, not not in, in the inner city, but overall in the country. But anyway, I know it's uh, almost going to be Shabbat where you are, so let's uh, let's catch up next week. Good to talk to you, David. Yeah, great.
1: Shabbat Shalom. Have a great
0: Okay, take care. Okay, Laponius, you're going to be really excited about this. You're going to find this so helpful. But uh, Laponius, have you read the, the book Soundtracks? The surprising solution to overthinking and you're probably saying 40 how how does a does a humble servant of the truth such as myself find a difference between overthinking and productive thinking and the difference is i learned in this book that with overthinking you don't take action all right so if your thinking is leading to action then that's the right amount of thinking so it quotes from a book called The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We can Rule It. And Lapodius, you keep bombarding me with questions. 40, how can I transform and transcend from my current negative frame of mind to become, you know, Susie Sunshine? Well, here is how Lapodius can become Susie Sunshine. There is no opposite of trauma because no single good event has such a lasting impact. You can consciously recall happy moments from your past, but the ones that suddenly pop into your head uninvited, the involuntary memories, tend to be unhappy. So your brain builds on overthinking's habit of negativity by doing these three additional things. Lying about your memories, confusing fake trauma with real trauma, and believing what it already believes. Now, you're saying... Forty, what are three actions whereby I can change my thoughts from a super problem into a superpower? I'm so glad you asked. Number one, retire your broken soundtracks, right? The familiar grooves of your thinking that's not serving you. Two, replace them with new soundtracks. Three, repeat the new soundtracks until they're as automatic as the old ones. Now, Laponius, you're saying Forty, what are three questions that I should ask my soundtracks? Like, why is it that I'm like always calling people clowns and negative uh, remarks and descriptions? Like, what's going on? I'm stuck, 40, in these negative soundtracks. Help me, 40. So question one from this book, it says, ask, is it true? Question two, ask, is it helpful? And question three is, is it kind? And you say, Forty just give me a question 4 please. Question 4 is would you say this to a friend? And then you're saying forty but what soundtrack should I borrow? Should I borrow from forty soundtracks of love and gratitude, faith, hope, optimism? You should borrow all the good soundtracks, Laponius all the good soundtracks. Yep, you'll become Laponius sunshine and meridius. All right. I am here for you guys during your time of grief. All right. So of course I'm talking about the passing of Archie Roach, the great Aboriginal singer. I mean, we all love Archie Roach. I mean, Archie Roach has provided the soundtrack for my life. I know Archie Roach provided the soundtrack for your life. And he just passed yesterday. So feel free to share in the chat. Where were you when you learned that Archie Roach had died? At age 66, we will not see his like again. I mean, this man lived and sang the Aboriginal blues. Who could forget his classic, Took the Children Away? I mean, it was inspired by his own childhood. It shook Australians into confronting a grim era Where their government tore apart Aboriginal families and took children away from Aboriginal families who were abusing them, away from Aboriginal families that were treating them like crap, and gave them a good solid education so that they could become productive citizens. I mean, so grim, so dark. My God. Archie Roach. He was born in 1956 as a memory of a tall black man with long limbs and curly hair reaching toward him while police officers were grabbing him. And the police officers, they were grabbing Archie Roach's father for no reason whatsoever, just because he was black and they were white. Right? He was raised, Archie Roach was raised by white people. And for years he thought he missed Scotland because his foster father was Scottish. Eventually, he got in touch with his Aboriginal side, and many of us these days are getting back in touch with our orig- Aboriginal side. We're, we're, we're joining a specific Aboriginal tribe. We're, we're taking on those obligations, responsibilities. And it was a homeless, one-armed Aboriginal man named Albert. Really helped Archie on his journey. So Albert took care of Archie. He showed him where in Sydney Archie could sleep free of charge, And he taught him how to productively panhandle. And he taught him how to drink. So Archie began drinking with his one-armed Aboriginal friend Albert from morning until night. I mean, what a beautiful love story. And when he looks back now, he sees the darkness would have touched his soul unless they numbed it with beer and port and sherry. Because they were part of an obliterated culture. All Aboriginal suffering is a responsibility of white people. Now, you're saying 40, did Archie ever find his family? And if so, where did Archie Roach find his family? Well, he ran into one of his sisters at a bar in Sydney. And he took up the old profession of his father and brother and he became a boxer. And he realized in the middle of one bout that he was fighting his own first cousin. He also earned a living by picking grapes And doing metal work. Now, shockingly, he often lost jobs in a blur of drunkenness. And shockingly, his alcoholic binges induced seizures. During one bender, he tried hanging himself with a belt. He was finally jolted into sobriety, and he found work as a health counselor at a rehab center in Melbourne. And he threw himself into writing songs. Who can forget where they were when they first heard Rally Round the Drum? About his old boxing days. Or his 1997 classic, Beggar Man. Have you got to, Bob? Can you give me a job? Hmm. Then open up your eyes. At 15, I left my foster home looking for the people I call my own. But all I found was pain and strife and nothing else but an empty life. I mean, some of some of the most powerful songs ever written. I mean, this, this bloke puts Handel's Messiah to shame archie roach man we're not not gonna see not gonna see his like again i'm so for clumped right now i i better just cut to tucker carlson i think i'm just getting way too emotional i'm I'm
3: sorry in several political polls that nobody in the american media could explain Donald Trump seemed to be performing exceptionally well among Hispanic voters in Florida. It was bizarre. So bizarre that everyone knew it could not be happening. It was scientifically impossible. If there's one thing that every reporter in America understood, it was that Donald Trump hated Hispanics, like the devil hates holy water. Some believe Trump was planning a national ban on picante sauce. That's how deep and implacable his hatred was. And yet, according to what journalists refer to as the data, actual Hispanics seemed to like Donald Trump. Cognitive dissonance is the term that describes what happened next. How could the numbers show something that couldn't be happening? So the Miami Herald looked into it and their conclusion was fairly straightforward. Hispanic voters in Florida were mentally ill and also evil. As one Miami Herald columnist put it, quote, Donald Trump's Cuban American followers suffer from Cuban supremacy syndrome. It's an old national ailment of the soul. So that was a diagnosis, something called Cuban supremacy syndrome, a serious but previously unknown medical condition like ADHD or long COVID. Someone had better call a doctor. This could be fatal. But before the medical establishment could intervene to save Hispanic voters from themselves, this ailment spread like the virus it was first from Florida, then to Texas and then across the country. By 2020, it was endemic. In the presidential election that year, Donald Trump, the guy who wanted to build a wall, became the first Republican in history to win Zapata County, Texas. Zapata County, Texas is approximately 94% Hispanic, 94%, and he won. For the Democratic Party, this was an emergency, made worse by the fact that there were no Cubans in Zapata County, Texas. It's pretty much all Mexican-American, so Cuban supremacy syndrome could not be the cause of it. And that's when a man called Eduardo Gamara came to the rescue. Now, Gamara is a blue-eyed college professor from Florida who has somehow convinced news organizations that he is, he is the world's authority on what recently arrived poor people from Central America really think. And he had a new diagnosis. Gamara, NBC News reported, found a, quote, casual link between misinformation and disinformation and how Spanish speakers have voted in recent elections. Of course, it was obvious Putin did it, just like Putin caused inflation and monkeypox and that war in Europe. According to Professor Gamara, Hispanic voters were just too stupid to realize what was going on. They had no idea they were being fooled. They're just too dumb. To Democrats, this explanation made perfect sense. Of course. And they bought it. A survey last month from WPA Intelligence found that more than half of CNN and MSNBC viewers now believe that, quote, disinformation is compelling Hispanic voters to vote Republican. Here's NBC, quote, news
4: it's a phenomenon that's having real-world effects. In Florida, 40% of Cuban-Americans say they don't believe President Joe Biden was legitimately elected. And given that Latinos spend more time on social media than their non-Hispanic white counterparts, it's a problem that's not going away. But it's not just happening in Florida. In Texas, Democratic strategists are sounding the alarm about a wave of misinformation aimed at Latinos heading into 2022.
3: (laughs) Did you hear that? Democratic strategists are sounding the alarm that Latinos spend so much time staring glassy eyed at their phones that they now have questions about the fairness of the last election. How to fix this? Obviously, we're going to need a lot more censorship to keep this disinformation away from all those gullible Latinos. Someone get Mark Zuckerberg on the phone immediately. It's hilarious. The bad news about the Democratic Party, obviously, is that it has become authoritarian. The good news is it remains ridiculous. These are people who believe their own improbable propaganda. So that's not the real explanation. So what is the answer? Why exactly are Hispanic voters moving to?
0: Hey, let's uh, go to Elliot Blatt. Uh, Mr. Blatt, how, how are you, sir?
2: Yeah, doing well, Luke. I'm in the car though, so be be advised.
0: That's a very American place to be, mate.
2: Yeah, it feels good. I feel American. I feel feel you know bonded with my country when I'm in the car, bro. At, at, a, at a stoplight, no less. Still feels good. Beautiful, beautiful. So um, sorry, I, I, I tuned in late, so I didn't catch the opening. So I don't know if there's a burning issue of the day or not.
0: Well, I, I don't want to step on, on your insights. You're about to talk about what's going on in the Donbass. Uh,
2: what happened in the Donbass?
0: I don't know, mate. I, I'm yeah. just so f- for clumped. I'm just so emotional about the passing of my queen that uh, it's hard for me to think straight. How are you holding up over the I'm passing right. of Queen Elizabeth?
2: Yeah, it's very funny. I, I, I never had any feelings one way or the other about... British royalty, but a lot of people uh, really—it seems to resonate with a lot of people, and I I never quite understood why. Um, uh, How about you? Did you? I never, I never had any
0: strong feelings about it. I mean, in general, all things being equal, I think traditions are good. All right, I'm not wedded to them, uh, so if, if something better comes along, you know, I'm open to it. But generally speaking, I think traditions are good rituals are good and traditions and rituals that bring people together and create a shared experience and therefore a shared energy and and a sense of identity uh, that these things are wonderful and so seeing England coming together in mourning and in in prayer and in ritual and in song and and having a shared experience I'm I think that's amazing I'm jealous of that because it'd be so much harder to have anything like that as an American
2: yeah. I remember talking to a Japanese guy, and he was, try- he was trying to explain what the emperor meant in Japan. Yeah. And he said it's like the entire personality of the emperor sort of fills the country. And it sort of represents the ideal of what it means to be Japanese. And so um, this was during the Clinton years. And he was trying to say, you know, he was trying to compare the emperor to Clinton, and it was different. Like, uh, there's a certain spiritual connection um, that people have with a monarch that, that I, you know, I was never inculcated with. So it was very hard for me to understand.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I've never thought much about the, the monarchy. Though watching The Crown on on Netflix, I, I find very moving. Just the portrayal of, of the life of service of, of these people, I, I find moon, moving. And I'm not like terribly devoted to monarchy, but uh, it does seem to serve serve a useful purpose for for many nations, for many individuals, for for many societies. It's not like we suffer from an excess of magic and enchantment and uh, uh, of the transcendent. So, yeah, this is a taste of an enchanted life for people.
2: Yeah, I mean, she's been queen from before I was born. I mean, the the length of that reign is uh, amazing. Um, uh, And, you know... So now we have King, we have a King Charles, or King, is it King George or King Charles?
0: King Charles the third, long may he reign over us.
2: Okay, so um, what if that makes a difference psychologically having a male monarch versus a female monarch? Uh, you, think, uh, yeah. you think it's going to be like a more ballsy kind of monarchy now, or...?
0: Well he he, uh, he definitely has a lot more opinions, so the, the queen kept virtually all her opinions to herself. Uh, King Charles the Third has very strong opinions about hundreds of things, like he hates brutal modern, modern architecture, for example, so I, yeah. I agree with him on, on that.
2: Yeah, well, you know, what I learned uh, yesterday is that like, theoretically the monarch can dissolve parliament at any if, if he wants to autocratically. Even today. Now, that's not done, but theoretically that is a power that a monarch, that the British monarch has.
0: And his representative it? can dissolve the parliament in, in Australia, and that was actually done in 1975. The government couldn't pass a budget, so the, the opposition wouldn't vote for the, to pass the budget, and so the nation was spiraling into an unprecedented crisis, and for the first time and only time in, in Australian history, the Queen's representative, who I think is called the governor general, Sir John Kerr, he dissolved the parliament and... Turned over the government of the country to the opposition on the basis that they would immediately call for new elections, and that there would only be a that they would pass the budget and then dissolve the parliament to go into elections. And so the the Queen's representative, yeah, she did she did force new elections in Australia in 1975.
2: Wow, that's interesting. So. Um... Yeah, so it could be a pivotal moment for all we know. This could be like, uh, you know, the butterfly flaps wings, and one thing leads to another and giant changes take place. We don't know.
0: Right, right. And uh, I mean, I just found it so moving just seeing thousands of English people connected by a common experience spontaneously joining in common songs. Uh, it, but that, that idea that people can go out onto the streets and experience something together, and Americans have substituted for the monarchy celebrityhood. So I, I'm not sure that fascination with Kim Kardashian is is an improvement on fascination with King Charles III or Queen Elizabeth or Princess Di.
2: Yeah, no, that's a good point. It's sort of a pseudo, pseudo-royalty, uh, our celebrity culture. that's why it's so uh, spellbinding, especially women. Uh, uh, My sister is obsessed with Princess Di. Remember the Princess Di haircut? Yes. Remember that? That was like, she created a massive fashion, sort of a short butch kind of haircut.
0: (laughs) Have you watched uh, many British films or TV series, particularly dramas?
2: Uh, I watched... um, was it Upstairs, Downstairs? The one about living, yes, like the, the help living in the basement,
0: yeah.
2: all the intrigue that went on. Yeah, I found it fascinating. Uh, and, I, of course, I watched Yes, Minister, but that's really not about monarchy. That's more about the deep state. But, uh, yeah, it is an interesting genre, um, but I haven't watched a tremendous amount of it.
0: But one thing that strikes me whenever I watch British drama is the quality of obligation in England. It's just unlike what goes on in America. In America, you follow your own bliss. You know, you do your own thing. But England is a society still that revolves much more around obligation and it's not revolving around self-fulfillment. So what self-fulfillment is to Americans, obligation seems to to be the the quality that that drives the Brits. So for for Americans, you know, repression is something you're supposed to transcend to self-actualize. The, the Brits don't really talk about self-actualization; they talk about you know recognizing your your obligations.
2: Yeah, that's true. Um, what? Why? How is it? You know, why did we break from that? You know, I mean, um, we were founded. Well, I guess you know. There were a lot of different colonial powers in America. You know, it wasn't merely the British. There's the Dutch, the French, Spanish on the West Coast. So it's not like we're a purely English, our origins are purely English. There was a lot of interplay between the two. And then there was a lot of uh, interplay uh, uh with the natives here. Um, so, yeah, I know. But we definitely lost something that the Brits still have.
0: Right so at the time of the war of independence America was 85% uh, of English origins so for, for 85% okay. Yeah so it was overwhelmingly an English country transported overseas until the massive immigration of the mid to late 19th century uh, well, but Well go ahead
2: Well there was a significant Dutch presence right especially around New York yes. and I think a lot of American presidents or at least one Spoke Dutch in the White House. That was his primary language. One of the earlier presidents. I'm forgetting which one. So, yeah, I, I hear. I, I'm not disputing that the English were dominant, but
0: uh, well, the there, type. The, the point is, uh, the point is that the type of English who came to America were the type of English who wanted to flee from their obligations. So very different from the English who stayed behind.
2: Well. Yeah, that's true, but different, different, different regions had settlement from different regions uh, within England. So, for instance, uh, those who settled New Hampshire were the same group that settled South Carolina, Scotch-Irish. And so those cultures, they're both very uh, conservative, if you notice, and there's a lot of similarity between the two, um, whereas Georgia was sort of a, colony, more like Australia. So there's each the states have their own pretty unique history that's sort of been glazed over uh, over time, but it's kind of interesting to talk about sometimes.
0: Yeah, so you're talking about Albion Sea, That's, that's the name of the book Four British Folkways in America, but the Four British Folkways in America had something in common, and that is they all lusted for freedom. Now, they had different ways of understanding freedom but they were all driven by a desire to get away from the British system of obligation.
2: Well, but I, I think, all right, some wanted economic freedom, others wanted religious freedom, but they were, there was no room and they were talented people, but there was no room in their society within England. And so they, they were sort of put in roles that were sort of beneath their Capability. That was my understanding. Well, that's it, what I learned it, from KMG. Actually, yeah,
0: I mean, it, it varied. So, for the the Puritans, they they came from w- one part of, of England, and they primarily wanted freedom to practice their religion. And then the, the Cavaliers, the, the 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 upper classes, the aristocrats who developed Virginia, they wanted you know freedom to establish their own prestige. Uh, Feeling stifled back back home in England, and then the scots Irish wanted to get away from the the stifling hand of uh, the the English government and then the Quakers wanted uh, freedom to develop their their own system so those are the the four, and so they all had different understandings of freedom, but what did drive them all was a desire for for freedom so you had East Anglia to Massachusetts. You had the yeah. south of England to Virginia, so the, the cavaliers and the indentured servants, uh, the gentry creating southern plantation culture. You had the North Midlands to the Delaware Valley, meaning the Quakers, and then you had the borderlands, the Scots-Irish to the backcountry.
2: Yeah, yeah. So uh, we have sort of got off on a tangent here, but uh, it's all very interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I used to... Um, uh, the well, it's another tangent. So I'll, another day. I don't want to take us too far.
0: Up no, field. go ahead. Go ahead. What, what's the other tangent? Do it.
2: Well, well, it was about like how the uh, so the natives, of, the Native Americans of New England, they they got on pretty well with the English for like 100, 150 years, right? In the in the earliest days, and then they find they 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 the reason that they grew apart basically because um the natives would do cattle rustling so the 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 english had settled agriculture so they had fenced in cattle and the natives would poach the cattle and this just became an um, you know growing sense of friction uh between the two and they finally couldn't resolve this uh amicably and then they started uh raiding each other and so um but at the same time, there was different tribes uh within the Native Americans and some were very aggressive. And so the aggressed upon made alliances with the English to fight off the Pequots. The Pequots were the uh really aggressive tribe and they're the tribe that actually has uh, Foxwoods Casino in Connecticut. Um, and uh so it wasn't as simple it wasn't as simple story as the English sort of overriding, you know, over, uh, you know, rolling over the natives, uh, as your sort of modern wokester would present the story. It was it was a story that had a lot of nuance and intricacies that um, are you know interesting and thought provoking.
0: Yeah, well, one way of summing up the the English versus the native uh, story is that. Uh, Proximity and diversity lead to tragedy. So it wasn't like they, they got along for 150 years. They were always slaughtering each other with, with periods of, of peace. But uh, the, the Native Americans didn't enjoy the growing English presence. And as the English you know, grew and established settlements, the, the natives would periodically try to wipe them out, which would then lead to the English wiping them out and so, you've got two, you know, incompatible peoples, constantly at each other's necks until one people triumphs over the other people.
2: Uh, yes, yeah, that's ultimately what did happen. But there was there was a there, there was a certain amount of reciprocity between the two because the English had goods that were very interesting uh, and useful to the natives, and the natives had a lot of skill and knowledge about the local terrain, and uh, uh, there was, actually, we're going too far field, but there was some, like, mutual benefit between the two for a while there.
0: Um, Yeah, different peoples have different gifts, and so the Indians were really good at tracking, and the English were really good at making manufactured goods.
2: Yeah, well, you know, uh, when the English arrived uh, in Massachusetts, the Puritans arrived,
4: there had, been,
2: there had just been a giant um, uh, uh, epi- a pandemic of some kind that wiped out like a giant portion of the natives. And so who there was only like ten percent of what were, uh, of the natives that, that uh, remained from what had been before. Like tons of people had died through a pandemic. Immediately prior to the arrival of the English, which was sort of a uh, interesting thing. So you know, the English always get the rap for like introducing uh, foreign, uh, you know, uh, infections that the natives had no defenses against. But um,
0: well, the English said, all. "Look, here's a vaccine. Like, take the vaccine, get vaxxed." But the right. the Indians were listening to disinformation.
2: Right. They were listening to QAnon yeah, uh, and the powwows and everything like that. Well,
0: social media. They were listening to disinformation <laughs> on social media, mate. And and yeah. th- they were showing the peer-reviewed academic studies w- with the, the benefits of getting vaccinated, but they preferred to believe disinformation, which is so sad. And
2: sometimes, and sometimes they would get vaccinated, these natives, and they would still get the disease, yet they'd still believe in the vaccination. They were just crazy people, Luke
0: crazy crazy (laughs) (laughs) we're going
2: into uncomfortable territory Luke. (laughs) (laughs) so i'm coming home from my uh my little warehouse luke i have a little warehouse now
0: oh beautiful are you moving up in the world bro
2: well don't get too excited it's uh it's basically a five by eight storage cube (laughs) but but i've i've decked it out i've turned it into a little like uh office slash workspace i'm really stoked it's like if i have a giant sense of accomplishment right now
0: you should man that's great hey did you know that my... I... go ahead no no go ahead. oh my uh my my tribal name is running booster
2: <laughs> really
0: yeah. yeah that's what that's what they named me
2: my my tribal
0: name is pure blood beautiful well, no, that sounds racist uh
2: true it does, but you know all people are racist, yeah, all people are skeptical about groups uh,
0: strange strange groups yeah um, pretty distressing news here just came in glib uh, Yeshiva University does not have to recognize the l g b t q student group for now. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who's on the left, but she made that ruling tonight. So Yeshiva University is not obliged to recognize a Pride Alliance LGBTQ student club.
2: Uh the, su- the suffering! Hmm. How those people are are pressed, Luke. Right. First it's monkeypox, and now and now this.
0: Hey, h- how do you like the monkeypox? czar? Pretty impressive, man.
2: <laughs> what a character! Yeah, he just, just you know, he just ema- you know, he emanates science. Yeah, doesn't it? You look at him, and you just a guy a serious scientific individual, who doesn't do nothing wrong. You know, just plays straight down the middle. Just the, uh, the essence of sobriety.
0: So. Here was one tweet from The Daily Caller. Meet Joe Biden's monkeypox, a progressive radical gay doctor who performs HIV screenings in sex clubs and gives meningitis shots in drag. Now he's in the White House. And then Derek Thompson writes for The Atlantic. He says, you can criticize public health folks for being too academic and removed from the realities of everyday life. Or you can criticize them for being too enmeshed in the day-to-day of high-risk communities, but I'm confused by those who would criticize both approaches. So wouldn't we ideally want a monkeypox czar, uh, you know, someone who lives the life and who has, you know, credibility uh, with with the, the community who's most at risk?
2: Yeah, no, does this czar um, advocate abstaining from any behaviors or is it just, just take your chances? At- what does he? Does he have a official position yet? Uh, I,
0: I'm sure he wants people to get vaccinated. Yeah. Okay. I mean, until no. until people get vaccinated for monkeypox, they're not going to be able to really enjoy a gay orgy.
2: So when are you going to get your uh, monkeypox back? And how many boosters do you intend to get?
0: Well, anyone can can get it. I mean, anyone can get uh, anyone can get monkeypox so yeah, we, we can't be we can't be too careful man that's that's what i didn't I tell to say. you about
2: i didn't tell you about my little uh, infection so I, I went what happened? i went swimming uh i went swimming uh last i think it was last uh saturday and there's been an algae bloom in the bay and so, uh, you know, I didn't watch the news or anything. I just went in the water. I swam for like a half an hour and I got out. And like 30 minutes later, my entire, all of my skin had burst into this rash. It was ferociously itching. I thought I'd, uh, really been poisoned. It was, uh, it was a rough couple hours there. But, um, it's, that seemed, infections seemed to be in the news at all, at all, at all. It'll
0: turn. So, is that your cover story for actually coming down with monkeypox? That you're going to tell people, "Oh, I was out swimming in the I, ocean."
2: Yeah, I was just—I yeah, was trying to. All right, you got me, Luke. You got me. I, I, was to, <laughs> I was trying to put a little, little spin on the truth, Luke, and you sniffed it out. Um, no, 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 no. I, I went to—I went to a bathhouse. I drank a bunch of Crystal Light, and I got in the door. And I just hosed the place down, Luke. You know. Yeah. And uh, and then it was just back and forth, in and out. It was it was yeah. just an hour of bliss, and yeah. I didn't do anything wrong, Luke. I was just 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 trying to relax, you know, Luke.
0: Yeah, I mean, you've been under so much pressure; no one could could blame you. So this is, I I often get itchy at night. You get itchy at night.
2: Um, not usually. No.
0: Well.
2: This Except is what. This one time.
0: Yeah, I use Cereve Itch Relief Moisturizing Lotion. It's like it's really cheap, and it moisturizes dry skin. But it's got three essential ceramides, so it relieves itching associated with insect bites, sunburn, poison ivy. It's steroid free, but it's so good. I mean, it really helps my itchiness. So I just start slathering this on myself, just like all over my body. <laughs> With the cerave, yeah. I mean, and, and it really works. And very reasonably priced on Amazon. So, what, uh, what do you use for your itchy body?
2: Uh, well, I just take a shower, Luke, and that's usually all it takes. Um, uh, that's one element I don't have. You know, we all have different crosses to bear. We all we already know about my various crosses: um, my 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 uh, asthma, my wheezing, and uh, I get, I get really bad athlete's feet. Luke. What about you?
0: No, no, my, my feet are good, but how's your digestion? Are you having regular bowel movements these days?
2: Extremely regular, Luke. Cause I've basically, I've doubled my salad intake this past month. I've really like made a commitment to eating salads, whether I want them or not. And, um, boy, saves dividends, my dude.
0: Hey, a lot of people find benefit for, for relieving the itch by, going to their local bathhouse
2: it's one or the other luke it's one or the other it's either uh you know amazon delivered skin cream or it's a urine filled orgy you know uh, there's no difference between the two there's no moral difference it's just a matter of style luke
0: yeah we we shouldn't be uh too too uh judge judgmental right Hey so I've been I've been reading a book that you're going to enjoy. It's uh it's called Soundtracks: The Surprising Solution to Overthinking. So uh, what are the most prominent like soundtracks that that go through your head? Not not songs, but but ways of thinking.
2: Um you mean yeah, sort of background thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. Um I sort of have two different, I have two different tracks and one, it's either one playing or the other. One is everything's gonna work out, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And then the other is everything is doomed, you know? Like, everything is doomed to failure or everything is just gonna unfold perfectly. So, uh, at any given moment, one of those tracks is running.
0: Okay, so here are the three actions to change your thoughts from a super problem into a super power. One, retire your broken soundtracks so that we're doomed. We, we can retire that. We can replace them with new ones. And three, we repeat the new ones until they're as automatic as the old ones.
2: So this is kind of like NLP kind of stuff? Mm, it's not nlp
0: it's uh it's, it's a book it just came out soundtracks the surprising solution to overthinking so overthinking is thinking that doesn't lead to action so if you think and right. then you act that's not overthinking but if you're thinking yourself into passivity that's overthinking
2: well all right, that's a good point because all right so that that's not very consonant with my recent experience so, you know, I told you about the problem with my apartment filled with that guy's shit and uh, all, just all of this sort of, uh, all these burdens that had been accumulating that I hadn't been able to deal with because they were so overwhelming. And then I went into that float period for three months. And then when I got out of it, I had, I just decided I'm just not going to think about it. I'm just going to take action. I'm going to just empty this apartment one box at a time until it's clean. And then I'm going to, you know, take care of every single thing I'm just, just going to not think but do, you know. Yeah. And it's really been great, Luke, because I've made these giant strides. So now I sort of, I my default uh, behavior now is just to do something and not dwell, you know. Wow, you're, it, becoming like you're becoming like Ricardo.
0: You're becoming like Ricardo, man.
2: What's Ricardo been doing, bro?
0: Well, it, that's just Ricardo. He's just a man of action.
2: He's a go-getter.
0: Yeah, I mean, he, he, he isn't immobilized by introspection. I mean, if he wants yeah. to scratch, he scratches. If he wants to belch, he belches.
2: Well, <laughs> I don't know why you keep coming back to this. <laughs> but the point is, is, like, all of these, like, dumb, like, mundane tasks, I now look forward to with a certain zest, like like a mountain climber looks towards the Matterhorn. Like, I like these difficult physical things that, uh, that I used to put off. I like just tacking them, throwing myself into them. So um, I hear you what you're saying about the soundtracks, because we do have control, and a lot of – stagnation sort of lets the soundtracks take over. But if you're taking action, uh, they just stop.
0: Yeah, my, my most common uh, soundtracks over the course of my life have been I am so effed. You know, that stupid mother effer. You know, we're all effed. Uh, Why doesn't that guy go get effed? Um, so, th- those, those are the soundtracks that have littered my life. But here are three questions that we should ask our soundtracks Question one, is it true? Question two, is it helpful? And question three, is it kind? Think uh, I
2: think you're, I think you're transporting. Isn't that from something else?
0: It's from a book, bro. That's is like it a, true? Is it helpful? No, is it's it like going? a
2: religion. Yeah, but uh, oh, by the way, I heard something about the founder of AA. Did you? Uh, I forgot his name.
0: Bill Wilson. You can tell me if this is true. Bill Wilson.
2: He's from Vermont, right? Yes. Is he from? Okay. So the guy told me that on his deathbed. Uh, Bill Wilson, all he would do was scream at his uh, his relatives to bring him some booze. <laughs>
0: yeah, I think so. I mean, he, he was. Have you heard that? Is that true? Yeah, I mean, I've heard it. I do not know if it's true or not, but it, it wouldn't surprise me that uh, people will scream things out on the deathbed.
2: Yeah, so he he uh, he never quite that addiction never quite left his uh, left his cells, you know.
0: That's no, we don't, with, we don't know if he was out of his mind i mean when when someone's you know on, on their deathbed I, i'm not sure you know how, how many you know deep and meaningful conclusions we we can reach from you know someone who's hallucinating or what's that called when you're when you're you know out of your mind hallucinating uh, um
2: delusional delirious yeah yeah, yeah
0: if you're a delirious
2: Yeah. Uh, well, supposedly when you, you go through all of your, your repressed memories, you know, you let go of them and you sort of start reliving things from your past. And I think booze must have been a big part of his past and he was just sort of reliving it as he was letting go of it. Anyway.
0: Yeah, If it's uh, if it's true, and it may well be, it wouldn't be shocking. So here are 50... Well, that... Go ahead.
2: That's the the standard that you're supposed to use when thinking about saying something.
0: Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it kind?
2: Yeah, it's a a pretty
0: good standard because there's this crazy idea that you should just be brutally honest. And that's just a terrible way to live because you'll destroy all your friends, your friendships. You'll destroy all your relationships with your family. So be brutally honest in a kind fashion. Right? You, you yeah. have to you have to think of the consequences of what you say, and it takes a little bit of effort to say things honestly that other people can hear, but you can usually pull it off. It just takes more effort than than a careless expression.
2: Yeah, for sure. Uh, can you hear the car as I'm driving? How is the audio quality?
0: No, it sounds fine. Okay,
2: technology is amazing. It's amazing how how. Uh... I was just thinking that I've really come to like this internet style of living that's sort of evolved. It seems like uh, my days are just packed with so much richness and interesting things. So, you know, I'm driving home, but I'm also having a conversation at the same time. You know, I'm, I'm doing, I'm living twice as much life as I used to live.
0: Yeah, you're a thought leader.
2: I wouldn't go that far, but I'm just, you know, do you remember the days of the rotary telephone loop? Remember those days? Yes. You would miss calls and then you'd have an answering machine with a cassette tape and you'd play it back. And sometimes it'd be garbled and all of that stuff. No more. (laughs) And then, then immediately you become used to this. you now, you, you, and now we have, we have technology that you couldn't imagine. Uh, Back then, and now you can't go a day without it. I'm parking now, Luke. It's exciting, isn't it? Okay. Thank you.
0: Uh, well, anyway. Okay, brother. Good. I, I don't right, want to I'm gonna, disturb I'm gonna have your park. Okay, All right, man. Peace. Talk to shabbat you later. Shabbat shabbat shabbat. Shabbat shabbat. Shabbat shabbat. Shabbat okay, take care. <laughs> okay, uh, interesting article here in the Washington Post that uh, Jewish
4: yeshivas are going to be. This news story was written by Laura Meckler. To abide by new York set to force ultra-Orthodox schools to teach secular subjects. New regulations, if approved by Board of Regents, would require private schools to meet state education standards. New York state officials on Friday proposed new rules that would require private schools to prove they are meeting state education standards, a long-awaited response to allegations that ultra-conservative Jewish yeshivas are failing to deliver lessons in core subjects such as English, math, and science. Schools that refuse to comply could lose their designation for meeting the state's compulsory education requirements.
0: Right. So with many of these Hasidic schools, people graduate without knowing how to effectively read English, write English, and just be a, a modern citizen. So people lack education. They have limited ability to support themselves and the 10 children that they usually have. So they depend on welfare. And uh, the rest of us have to to pick up that that burden so i'm on the side of the state demanding minimal levels of secular education even in the most religious of schools
4: and school districts that fail to monitor the private schools in their boundaries could lose state funding officials said The rules apply to all private schools, religious and not, but they come in response to years of accusations that many ultra-Orthodox schools in Hasidic Jewish communities spend virtually all of their time studying Torah and Talmud, religious texts, leading children without the education that state law requires they be offered in English, math, science, and social studies, along with a handful of other topics. State officials said they expect schools and local districts to work together to demonstrate schools are meeting the required benchmarks. That may prove optimistic, given the yeshiva's contention that the entire oversight process is invalid and their resistance to past investigations and questioning. The new regulations, which are expected to be approved next week by the State Board of Regents, set up a fresh test of religious liberty in schooling, and people on both sides of the debate predicted the dispute will be appealed in court, possibly to the highest levels. They come at a time when a more conservative Supreme Court has recognized broad religious freedom rights. Backers of the new rules say they represent important protections for children. Tens of thousands of children have been, and continue to be, denied a basic education, said Naftali Moster, who attended a Hasidic yeshiva in Brooklyn as a child. Frustrated by the substandard education he said he received, in 2012 he founded the group Young Advocates for Fair Education, or YAFT, to press for investigations and enforcement.
0: Right, so I would side with this guy. Tens of thousands of people are being raised essentially to be moochers.
3: To the right, they definitely are. The latest Fox News polling shows that 72% of Hispanic voters are not satisfied with the direction that Democrats are taking in the United States. Why? Why is that? What problem do Latino voters have with the Democratic Party? Well, the answer might be as obvious as it seems. They just don't like what we've got now. It is entirely possible that, like all normal people, Hispanic voters have come to despise the entitled urban liberals who run everything. And why wouldn't they despise them? Those people are absurd. Not a single word they utter is sincere ever, and everything they touch turns to filth. We can give you countless examples of this, but we're just going to pull one from today's news. Washington D.C. Councilmember Brian Nadeau has long promised to love and protect illegal aliens in Washington, D.C. And thanks to her, and many like her in local government, the District of Columbia is now a, quote, sanctuary city. That's how much they love illegal aliens. Brian Nadeau especially, she loves them. And yet the moment actual illegal aliens showed up in Washington, D.C., sent by the governor of Texas, Brian Nadeau became completely hysterical about it.
4: Watch this. It's been said, but it's worth reiterating, that the governors of Texas and Arizona have created this crisis. And in many ways, the governors of Texas and Arizona
1: have turned us into a border town.
3: (laughs) They've turned us into a border town! Really? Why is that bad? Okay, a question
0: from the chat. Look, do you have any opinion on anti-BDS laws? Now, I'm happy for the fight to, to play out. Like, BDS seems like a a movement that uh, represents the thinking of of millions of people. So pro-Israel advocates have claimed for for decades, why why can't those who are opposed to the Jewish state of Israel, why can't they make their case nonviolently? Well, BDS, Boycott, Divest Movement, Boycott and Divest from from Israel, sanction, this is a movement that is nonviolent. So but for those who are opposed to the modern Jewish state of Israel, it makes sense that they would organize something like boycott, divest, and sanction. So I understand the attraction of BDS, and then people who like the modern Jewish state of Israel make sense that they want to fight back against it. So I don't view it in moral terms. I don't think the 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 BDS crowd is the the moral crowd and the anti BDS is the immoral crowd and i don't think the other way around either it's just a struggle over power so i'm um, let uh, let freedom ring let let the fight play out right uh both both sides have powerful arguments and uh they usually try to make their case morally and uh that's that's not the, the most uh, compelling angle to me. To me, it's just a, a battle over power. It's a battle over who will lead, who will have power. Look, do you have any interest in the fate of Ron Jeremy? Uh, mild interest. Not, uh, doesn't seem like a terribly important story to me. Oh, Mercedes says, I went to my first AA meeting this week. So congratulations. It's an opportunity to bond with other people to share stories with other people is very powerful when you can get in a room and share things that you can't normally share with other people and hear other people's stories that connect with your own story in some ways so creating a space where you can share where you can connect with people over a common problem and most importantly bond over a common solution and have a home away from home so I don't see the downside in making new friends, developing a new community, uh, learning from other people. Uh, 12-step programs frequently offer a very healthy way of life. Now, 12-step programs also contain a lot of creeps, and so you can't just let your guard down and you know, let everyone you meet in a meeting into your life. You still have to use discretion in who you allow into your life. So just because you met them at a 12-step meeting doesn't mean that they are truly on the path of recovery
3: or that you want them in, in your life. What's wrong with border towns? Weren't you just telling us, Brianna Nadeau, how great border towns are? So much diversity, so much strength. But as it turns out, and this probably won't shock you, Brianna Nadeau didn't mean any of it. Brianna Nadeau doesn't want illegal aliens in her neighborhood any more than the overwhelmingly Hispanic voters of Zapata County, Texas, want them in theirs. So what would that make Brown and Nadeau? Well, a disgusting little hypocrite. You knew that already. A lot of Hispanic voters are learning it now. So there's that, the basic repulsiveness of Democratic Party leaders. By the way, nearly all of whom are openly hostile to the historic Christianity of Latin America that a lot of immigrants still believe in. But then there's also crime. Crime's the big one. It seems likely that more than any other issue, crime, the increase in crime in the United States, is moving Hispanic voters to the right. They see, as we all see, liberals aggressively encouraging crime. Crime destroys their neighborhoods. Crime destroys the lives of the weakest. And these voters, like all voters, watched Nancy Pelosi call MS-13 children of God. At the same moment that MSNBC, MS-13 rather, members were hacking Salvadoran immigrants to death with machetes. Do you remember when Pelosi said that? Here it is.
4: We're all God's children. There's a spark of divinity in every person on earth. And so when the president of the United States says about undocumented immigrants, these aren't people, these are animals, you have to wonder, does he not believe in the spark of divinity, the dignity and worth of every person? So they
3: watch someone who clearly doesn't actually believe in God invoke God repeatedly to defend something that's completely indefensible. Just a year before Pelosi's heartfelt tribute to MS-13, an MS-13 gang member stabbed a man outside Washington more than 100 times and then beheaded him and ripped out his heart. That was a child of God? No, Trump was right. That was an animal. Hispanic voters can see that. Most of them did not go to Yale Law School, to their great credit. Just days ago, a man called Jose Rafael Solano Lendetta beheaded a mother on the street in Silicon Valley. Her two young children watched as he murdered her. Now, who was this man? We reached out to San Mateo County Sheriff's Office officials to learn more about him. We asked, was he here in the country illegally? And here's the response that we got. Quote, I'm sorry, I'm not able to share that information. Well, why is that? Well, we can guess why. Because, of course, there's a very high chance that this man was in the country illegally. And not by accident. Democrats have suspended border enforcement to win the love of Hispanic voters. What they apparently did not realize, because they're not super bright, is that Hispanic voters don't want violent lunatics in their neighborhoods either. They're not into beheading people. Who knew? And there's one other factor that may be moving this large and centrally important group of voters to the right. People whose families have immigrated from the third world may be more sensitive than most to the importance of the rule of law. The rule of law is the one thing that America has always had that the rest of the world has not. That's why people come here. And most immigrants consider it important still. Liberals do not consider it important. They're working to end it. Equal protection under the law is disappearing. At every So the, the right-wing
0: perspective on life is probably the built-in perspective, right, where you care more for your own group than for our groups, where your morality is based on on concentric circles. So you first care about yourself, your family, your friends, your community before you care about people on the other side of the world, while people on the left have leapfrogging morality. So I'm echoing the words of Steve Saylor. So people on the left you know, may care about people on the other side of the world far more than they care about their own family. Now, during tough times, people revert more to their primal identities, and people will usually become more right-wing. Also, when people get intoxicated, they also tend to become more right-wing. So the left-wing liberal perspective on life, that essentially has to be learned. You have to be programmed into it.
3: Every level of American life, liberals apply an obvious double standard, and that double standard is based on race. That'd be matters of education and employment, obviously, but also matters of law enforcement and criminal justice. Liberals put up with certain behavior from some people that they would never accept in other people. That is the definition of unfairness, but you see it every single day. Remember the arrest of that Dominican bodega owner in New York? The guy was violently assaulted by a man whose girlfriend tried to rob the store. The bodega owner tried to defend himself, and he stabbed his attacker, as most people would. Authorities in New York charged that man with murder and sent him to jail. And everyone could tell this was a double standard. Would an elderly black bodega owner have been arrested for stabbing a Dominican attacker? Obviously not. No one said it, but everyone saw it. And everyone understood the unfairness of that, including Hispanic voters. Why would they like it? If they wanted to live in a deeply unfair society, they would have stayed in the countries their ancestors came from. But they came here because it's a fair society. That's the main appeal of America, not a robust economy, but the fact that we're all equal under the law. That's the one thing other countries don't have, and we do or did. So there's a double standard, and everyone sees it. And it's not just the level of bodega owners. It goes to the very top of the Democratic Party, to its top candidates. In South Carolina, for example, Democrats have nominated a Senate candidate, U.S. Senate, called Crystal Matthews. Crystal Matthews was caught on tape recently by James O'Keefe's group, Project Veritas, openly advocating for punishing people because they're the wrong skin color. Not exaggerating it. Here's the tape. My district
4: is heavily Republican and it's heavily white. Wow. I'm not a stranger to white people. I'm
3: from a mostly white town. Yeah. And let me tell you one thing. You got to know who you're like, doing. Yeah. You got to like yeah. like, like, I mean, hurt white people or they won't respect you. She said that. That video is real. And yet somehow no one seems to have noticed. Crystal Matthews is not on the front page of the New York Times this morning. There was no Justice Department investigation into her. That's weird. And everyone knows it's weird. But it's hardly the only shocking news story that's not being covered as a news story. Also missing from mainstream coverage is this video. From Memphis, of a young criminal promising to murder white people because of their skin color. So that video was recorded just a day after the rampage, the murder rampage in the same city, Memphis, committed by a felon called Ezekiel Kelly. Ezekiel Kelly, like so many people who've committed murder recently, was let out of jail early. But no one in charge in the Democratic Party in Memphis seemed bothered by that. In fact, while he was killing people, a state representative in Tennessee, a Democrat called Antonio Parkinson, complained that the real problem was police might hurt Ezekiel Kelly. That was his main concern. Quote, this is unbelievable. Ezekiel Kelly will probably be killed tonight at the hands of police. We are losing our children, he wrote. Really? That's your concern? So in all three of these stories we've just reminded you of the bodega owner in New York, Crystal Matthews in South Carolina, the anti-white violence in Memphis, no one's noticing. Joe Biden's DOJ is standing back and doing nothing. In other words, they're allowing violent race hate to flourish in the United States. At the same time, they're telling you white supremacy is the biggest threat we face. This is terrifying on many levels. But above all, once again, it is an attack not on any specific ethnic group, but on a principle that protects all of us. And that's the principle of equal justice under the law. If you move to the United States from Latin America hoping to live under a fair justice system, this might bother you.
0: Okay, I think that will do it for tonight. Take care. Bye-bye.